Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, scientists, experts, and more to learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak. And of course, what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. Okay, this week's guest is American middle distance runner and Olympic athlete, Colleen Quigley. Colleen is one of the top runners in the United States. She earned nine NCAA All-American honors while running for Florida State University. She won the NCAA steeplechase in 2015. A year later, she represented the U.S. at the Olympics in Rio. Colleen was on a track to go to the Olympics again this year, but injuries derailed her hopes right before the trials. She talks about how injuries have taught her how important running is to her and how mindset is a critical tool in overcoming physical setbacks. Mindset is a big theme of this discussion, and Colleen shares how her meditation practice has made her a better runner. I know you'll find Colleen to be an inspiration, and there's a lot to take away from her story and her approach. A reminder, you can get 15% off a Whoop membership by using the code Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. Okay. Without further ado, here is Colleen. Colleen, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Thanks for having me. Fan of the pod. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for listening to the podcast. I think that's how <laughs> how we met uh, over uh, Instagram. You, you said you had listened to it, so I appreciate that. Yeah, you've had a lot of athletes on here that I look up to and enjoy following. So yeah, happy to be here. So you've had an amazing career uh, as a competitive runner. And I guess I'll start by asking you if you always knew that you were going to go on to be such a successful runner. Was that something from a very young age you said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm a runner. I'm off for the races. No. And I think, I feel like you've had a lot of athletes on here that you've talked to who did know that from a young age and have been like on this single minded, you know, uh, just track of success. But uh, I was a dancer when I was growing up. I danced tap, jazz, ballet, point, um, and I played soccer both for like nine years until I was a freshman in high school. Um, But actually my family, I come from like a family of runners, um, running runs in my family. And my both my parents ran marathons back in the day and my older brother ran in college and actually ran professionally for a couple of years. Um, so finally freshman year of high school, I succumbed to the running in my jeans, uh, went out for cross country the fall of my freshman year of high school, um, because I wanted to stay in shape for soccer, which was going to be in the spring. But then actually when soccer tryouts came around in the spring, I wussied out. I was too nervous to try out for the soccer team as a freshman and track was no cut. And I really liked the girls that I had become friends with in the fall. Uh, The cross country girls were all just super nice. And um, I really enjoyed being on that team. So I was like, oh, I'll just keep, keep doing this. It was kind of like an extension of cross country on the track. And so I never tried out for soccer and I quit, uh, I quit dance that year too. Um, and I just, I don't know, just focused on running. That seems amazing. The freshman year of high school. So what you're 14 years old or so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it, I mean, that feels like a, a somewhat late stage to start formally running, but I guess if you're doing all these other sports and running some parkour to them, 
I mean, you do a lot of running and soccer, obviously. So like I was doing that. And then I think with dance, a lot of strength and like body spatial awareness, um, which ended up because I specialize in an event on the track called the steeplechase. Um, so it's a hurdling, a long distance hurdling event. And so you're doing more than just running. There's also a, a water obstacle you have to launch yourself over. And so it takes a little bit more like athleticism and coordination than like running, like say a 10 K where you're just, you know, run straight turn left for uh, 25 laps. So I think that ended up some of that athleticism and like coordination from running or from dancing and playing soccer ended up being to my benefit when I started to try the steeplechase when I got to college. Now, at what point in high school did you realize you were pretty good at this? Um, so my dad, uh, has been coaching track and field and cross country for 30 plus years at this point. And he still coaches my old high school team. Um, they want to stay, they want a state title the year after I left. Um, not bitter about it at all that I missed out on that, but, um, he was coaching on an all boys school. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and we have lots of all boys schools and all girls schools there for some reason, um, good Catholic, Irish Catholic city. Um, so I went to an all girls Catholic high school. And when I finished my freshman year, uh, I got a little bit injured that fall, like not having ever really run before and then starting to kind of run a decent amount. I think I got like shin splints and stuff my freshman year. Um, but my dad, I don't know. I think he was like, huh, like, I think my daughter is going to be a pretty good runner. And so he ended up, he ended up quitting coaching at the all boys school where he teaches and still, still teaches today and got um, started coaching me at my school. Um, and I now think just that you or your year, whole team. So at first it was just me. Um, and then I started doing pretty well. And then I think other kids and their parents were like, we want that chick's dad to coach our daughter. Um, and so then by the <laughs> time I left, he was the head coach of the program uh, because yeah, I think he's a really good coach. And, um, but I, I still, I didn't win. Like I wasn't winning like nationals my senior year of high school or anything. Like I was only running 30 or 35 miles a week. There was definitely girls who were running 60, 65, 70 miles a week and, you know, um, running much faster than me in high school. And they looked, you know, they looked older. They, um, had thinned out more. Like I still had baby fat when I went to college and I definitely, um, had a, a smart trajectory. Um, and I credit my dad for that where I was not like peaking in high school by any means. I find that a really interesting phenomenon in running this idea of when you peak, because I've read a lot too about some runners actually peaking even in their early thirties. I mean, look at Allison Felix. She just competed in her fifth Olympic games and she's a 400 meter sprinter and she has a baby and she's like 30. I don't even know. She might be like 35 now. And she just right. ran her second fast time ever in the 400 in Tokyo. Isn't that which amazing? Is, she's, I mean, she's a freak of nature. That's incredible. You definitely see that more like the longer distance athletes, um, like athletes who are going to compete in like the marathon. It's very common to see you peak when you get older. But then you see someone like Molly Seidel, who just got a bronze medal in Tokyo, and that was her third marathon ever. And she's only 27 years old. So there's rules, but there's always exceptions to the rules. And so when you say that you didn't peak in high school and you were still kind of getting, you know, getting better, 
are you thinking that about that from a, a training standpoint in terms of your mileage? You kind of kept your mileage at the right level and certain people who peaked too early, maybe they were going too hard too early and they burned I out. I think so. I mean, so actually speaking of Molly, Molly is the first ever athlete to have won footlocker cross country national championships in high school and then gone on to win an Olympic medal. That's never happened before. before wow, interesting. Her. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, you're the national champion. You like you would have the best chance of re- reaching the heights of our sport. But then for some reason, up until this year, that's never actually happened. So I don't know. I think other, you know, lots of things. Mileage is definitely a big one. But also, like, I only ran six days a week in high school. I always took one day off. Um, and I never did. So when I went to college, I started doing some workouts in like flats, like lighter weight shoes, um, and definitely more workouts and spikes. Um, but in high school, I did all of my workouts, easy runs and workouts in just like a regular old trainer, like a, you know, just like a A6 gel cumulus or whatever it was in high school. Um, and then I would race in spikes. But now I couldn't imagine doing the workouts that I do now in my training shoes. Like I have like four different pairs of shoes that I use now because I'm trying to hit certain paces and get my legs to turn over. And, um, but all that like is, I mean, it's extra like wear and tear in your body, but you're, you're like able to push your body harder than you would if like, if you were just wearing training shoes. So it's almost like making sure that you don't go too hard when you're younger like kind of you need to like pull back a little bit and that's in the coaching too like the coach their biggest job I believe in high school is to hold back the kids more than it is to push them because they'll want to go hard 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 every day like they'll usually you know it's more typical for them to just want to do more 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 and the coach I think the coach's job is to like rein them back more than anything what's it been like having your dad as a coach or your dad was your coach what was that like? yeah it was amazing. I think we, so I was actually homeschooled until high school. Both my parents are in education. So they decided to homeschool my brother and sister and I, and uh, my mom was the one who was um, mainly doing that. And so I spent a lot of time before high school with my mom. Um, and there's a big homeschool network in St. Louis as well um, with a bunch of families in, in St. Louis that homeschool. Um, but my dad was teaching at a high school during the day during that time. And then when I got to high school, um, every day from 3 PM till 6 PM, it would be like, that was my time to be with my dad. Um, and then obviously on the weekends it'd have meets and, you know, he would, if I needed to run outside of practice or like, you know, spring break or whatever, like he was my coach and my dad. And we just got to spend a lot more time together than we ever had. Um, and so, yeah, I think that time was really important for us to grow in our relationship together. And we, to this day, have just a super strong relationship. And I, I call him about, and my mom about just about anything that's going on with like running or personally, um, cause they really, they kind of know me the best out of anyone. So yeah, that's, I think that was really important. That's cool. I, I find the, these these families that are super professional athlete heavy are really interesting families. Obviously yours being one of them. I was talking to Nellie Corda this morning and like her sister's a top professional golfer. She's number one in the world. Her brother is like a Wimbledon star or tennis star, I should say. Oh, wow. 
And, and, you know, it's interesting just hearing from different people about how the role that the parents play in cultivating and cultivating young athletes in their case, both of their parents were professional athletes. Mm -hmm. And, and it's interesting listening to you talk about it. I mean, there's a level of credibility that comes with it, right? Because your dad's obviously done this for so long and, and knows what is good. Well, it's interesting. And he does, but he almost, and it could have gone, I think, like, really poorly, because actually, my both my parents and my older brother all had the goal of qualifying for the Olympic trials in their own careers. Um, Because you have to, like, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but you have to qualify just to go to the trials in order to qualify for the Olympics. You have to have like a certain time just to go to the trials. And so for both my parents, like didn't quite reach it in the marathon. They were trying to go in the marathon. And then for my brother, he, he would have gotten there except for he got injured uh, right before and wasn't able to financially make it work to wait another four years uh, for another chance. So ended right. up having to start just, you know, real, like real life, I say with air quotes and working, he's a mechanical engineer. So he just had to, you know, get a, get a job that paid real money and, you know, had to move on. So he never got there either. Um, So in 2016, um, I graduated from Florida state in 2015. And then in 2016, um, qualified for the trials and then qualified for the Olympics. And they were all there uh, at the track when I like did that. And I remember that just being like such a big moment for our family to be like, we finally got one. But I feel amazing. Like as a parent, like it would have been pretty easy, I think, to feel like I'm su- kind of surprised looking back that I didn't feel more pressure as a kid to like live out my parents' goals. Like I never thought about it that way and I never felt that pressure from them. Um, and in fact, I thought I was going to graduate high school and I was doing some modeling in high school and I thought I was going to graduate high school and move to New York and like become the next Carly Kloss. But then I decided, <laughs> then I decided to do this running thing instead. Um, and I never felt like, I always felt like that, that option to go do that and not pursue running was always an option. It was something that they would support me. in if that was what I chose, um, and it's just, yeah, it's interesting seeing, I don't know, families like Venus and Serena, it seems like their parents, like their dad was very like, this is what you're going to do. And like, this is your path. And even though my parents were athletic and they were runners and my dad was my coach, I never felt that. Like, I always felt like it was my choice. And that the minute I told him, I hate running, I'm done. Then I'd be like, okay, like, then we'll find something else. Or do you like dance? Like, we'll do dance. Like, I never felt pressure to become a professional runner. It's interesting that you were choosing between being a professional athlete and a model, because those are two of the only careers where you have a kind of a short window to be at your peak. You yeah. know, like most careers you're getting They're both in, very, in your forties yeah. and fifties and sixties <laughs> or whatever, like you're kind of at the top of the game models and pro athletes are at the top of the game in their twenties or early thirties. Yeah. They're both a career where people will constantly ask you while you're in the peak of your career, what are you going to do after this? Yeah, you're right. like, Oh my God. Like I'm, yeah, I'm in the middle of it. I don't know. It's just a weird thing, but people ask that to professional athletes all the time. And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure professional models get that all the time too. Cause there's this like expiration date that, you know, is coming. So the decision for you to be a pro athlete seems like it was a logical progression after graduating from school and obviously your success with the Olympics or Olympic trials in 2016. 
Is that fair to say? Or was there a little bit of a go, no go moment? I, even when I um, went to Florida state, I never went there with the dreams of going to the Olympics. Um, I studied dietetics in school um, and thought that I found dietetics my sophomore year. I was an exploratory major my freshman year of college. They, they don't call it undecided at Florida State. They call it exploratory Smart. <laughs> for optics, I guess. Um, but so I was exploratory for a year and then I chose dietetics. And then I really thought like I put myself, you know, like this is I was serious about my studies because I thought I was going to become a dietitian when I graduated. Um, becoming a professional runner was not on my mind at all. Um, and, and not until really my junior year. So sophomore year of college, I was second at NCAAs in the steeplechase. And that's when I think I really was like, huh, like second as a sophomore is like pretty good. And so I went into my junior year thinking, well, the chick who, who beat me went to the Olympics last year and she graduated Emma Coburn. So it's my, like, that's the only chick who beat me last year. So now so she's gone. It's your turn. Yeah. It's my turn. But a couple of weeks before regionals, I ended up, uh, I started feeling some pain in, in my foot in my left foot. And when I was running and especially when I was wearing spikes and I remember doing one workout where I tried to work out and I just like, I started crying in the middle of the workout. Cause I was like, Oh no, like this foot is really not good. And I just knew something was wrong. It was my first time with a major injury. Um, and I got an MRI and I had a stress reaction in my foot. And I it was my, this end of the season, I had to call the whole season. Um, I didn't even get to go to regionals and qualify for nationals. So that whole like foregone conclusion that I felt of like being a national champion that year, all of a sudden got ripped away. And I think that was the first time where I was like, I really care about this. And I'm devastated that I can't do it right now. Um, and I remember that summer being really, really hard, but that summer I think was when I first started considering running post-collegiately, um, like really seriously, because before that people would ask me like, are you going to go to the Olympics? Like in 2016. And I remember being like, no, like I would answer them like, you're stupid. <laughs> like, no. And then all of a sudden after that year, I started answering being like, I don't know, like maybe, um, but it definitely, I just say that to say that it was definitely not like, you know, something that I dreamed of as a little kid and I always knew what I was going to do. And then I just went out and did it. Like, it was not like that at all. There was definitely lots of ups and downs and like trying to figure out what the heck it was that I wanted to do. And then having setbacks along the way that almost like, um, helped solidify that in my head. Like you don't even know what you have it kind of until it gets taken away. And then you realize, oh, wait, no, I really care about this. And I don't want to stop doing this in a year. You know, I want to keep doing this at least for another year. Um, and even then, I went to the Olympics thinking, I went pro in 2015 thinking, I'll do this for a year. And if I make the Olympics, great. And if I don't, well, I only wasted a year of my life. So then I'll just go, you know, be a dietitian. But it wasn't until I left Rio in 2016 being like, oh, damn, I want to do this again in four years. And I, you know, I think I can do it better. And so I'm a professional runner now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know, it, I've heard from other professional athletes that getting injured also introduced some 
you know, benefits in a way, like it, it made them more grateful for their sport. It made them more focused. It made them realize they're not invincible. It made them fill in the blank. Um, for you, what, what have you learned from injuries in your career? Well, I've been injured so much at this point that I'm like, I'm, I think I'm done learning about myself. I think if we can just be done with that part now. <laughs> so you're over injuries. Like I'm super grateful and I'm super, you know, like yeah, I, right. I promise you don't need to teach me that lesson anymore. I've learned it. Um, yeah. Look, injuries are very tough. It's like pretty much the worst, you know, thing that can happen to an athlete is like take away what you love to do most. Um, but you can learn, obviously you can learn so much about yourself and, and your body and like what your body needs, but you can also learn so much about your mind and what your strengths are and kind of strengths and, and power that you didn't even know that you had until you were challenged to be able to use it. Um, like there were certain times where I would, for example, this summer I got injured, um, about a month before the Olympic trials. So after waiting four years from Rio and after waiting an extra year because of COVID literally, you know, six weeks before the trials, my body just gave out. And I was like, okay, like, <laughs> this is not what I had planned for. Um, but I remember even like writing in my journal that what I had done that day to like, try and get better. And it was like all the cross training that I was doing and the exercises, the PT exercises and seeing the like doctor and like, you know, making sure I didn't fall off my nutrition. I was like writing down all the things that I was doing that I was like in control of to try and fix my situation. And I was like, you know what, I have to kind of like be proud of myself for this, because this is a shitty situation. And for some reason, I wake up every day, and I'm still in pain, but I'm like still trying to do all the right things. And yeah, I like break down sometimes, but I do it anyway. And I'm like, I mean, that's kind of amazing that I'm like still here doing this. And I think it's only until you really get tested in that way that you like figure out what it is that you can overcome and just like how much you care about what you're doing because I think sometimes it's easy to just like be like oh yeah like I like this or I like running and then someone all of a sudden tells you you can't do it and then you realize like how much it actually means to you and yeah I have found out many many times that running means a lot to me. Well, you've built up a resilience that's going to serve you very well in decades to come, I'm sure. I hope so. <laughs> I feel like now, I've earned a lot of resilience. I feel like, can I just like use it now? That'd be great. So six weeks before you, you get injured, uh, six weeks before the Olympic trials, you get injured. How, how did you know that, hey, I've got no shot. This is like, this is not going to. Oh, yeah, that- I didn't. <laughs> I did not let myself believe I have no shot until the prelim in Eugene was on sun a Sunday. It was like the 24th, I think, of July or of June. And I did not admit to myself or my support system until Thursday, three days before that I wasn't going to be able to get on the starting line. I think I probably knew like a month before that, but we were just like, I wouldn't even let myself... I was like, if I can just get to the starting line, I can make the team. Like, I don't have to be at 100. I don't even have to be at 80%. If I just get myself to the starting line, like those don't have a chance. I'm going to, you know, like it's going to happen. 
but then Thursday I had kind of one last like freak thing. It was a, a few different things that kept popping up. Um, and the last thing that took me out was like a nerve issue in my calf where I just couldn't run for like four days. Um, I could like barely walk. And then by that Thursday, I tried to put on my spikes and go over some hurdles and I just couldn't do it. And so then I had to kind of have that come to Jesus moment where I was like, yeah, this is not, there's no way that this is going to happen. Um, but I, I was in Eugene, Oregon when I decided that, like, there was no way that I was going to have that moment where I was at home on Saturday before the race being like, I actually feel okay. Maybe I could have done it. And I wish I would have just tried, like, there was no way I was going to have any regret about not, you know, not, um, taking it to the, to the maximum almost end. So yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Now in 2019, you started working with a mental coach. Hmm. Talk a little bit about that. I find mental coaches very interesting, especially for professional athletes. Yeah. So I had started meditating in the summer of 2017. That was like my first step um, was I started using an app to meditate because I was just stressed out all the time and like um, not handling the stress of like workouts and stuff and feeling like not handling the pressure very well. And so, um, I just started meditating and that was like a, actually a really big unlock for me. I remember telling my coach, like, I found this secret weapon and he was like, whatever, like, it (laughs) is a secret weapon. He's a little more old school. And he was just kind of like, you're weird, but do what you got to do. You're running better. So like, whatever. Um, so let's focus on that for a second. So you start meditating and then all of a sudden you start running better. (laughs) Yeah, I think just like being able to be more calm um, and like the whole principle of meditation about like being exactly where you are and not thinking about the past and not thinking about the future is so beneficial for running. Like when you're in the middle of a workout or a race and if you're thinking about how you felt two laps ago or how you think you're going to feel on the next lap based on how you feel right now, then it's useless. It's wasted energy and you create the stress for yourself that doesn't even about a scenario that doesn't even exist. And I think that's especially true in an event like the steeplechase where you have four of these big wooden barriers placed around the track. Every hundred meters, you're jumping over a wooden stationary object that if you hit it because you weren't paying attention, the hurdle is not falling onto the track. You are falling onto the track. And so you have to just be aware in every second of that race. There's no zoning out. There's no, oh, I just clipped that last hurdle and I'm stressing out about it for the next even 50 meters. You just have to like, oh, that was a crappy hurdle done onto the next one. You cannot be thinking about the past or the future in an event like that. Um, But I think it's also applicable for, I mean, it's applicable for anything in life, but even if you're not jumping over things, just being like, I'm going to take this race a hundred meters at a time or one lap at a time. And if you're in the fifth lap, you can't be thinking about the 24th lap. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a waste of mental energy and that's what meditation is all about. And so I think it, it just made a lot of sense to me. Like it just clicked for me. Um, and I was able to pretty quickly, like see some major benefits to that in my training and, and racing. Well, I'm a big believer in meditation. I started meditating in 2014 and nice. uh, 
Whoop was was kind of struggling as a company, but more so I was struggling as a as a founder and a CEO. And uh, I don't know. I've been doing it every day since. It changed my life. I really when yeah. When do you like? How do you work it into your day? I wake up in the morning. I take a cold shower. I get ready for work, and then you're the cold shower person. Yeah, yeah, I do that too. And then uh, I do 22 minutes of of meditation, and it's kind of technically transcendental meditation, although I've incorporated a lot of other things along the way. Okay. And why 22 minutes? Well, technically transcendental meditation is 22 minutes. So you, you oh. do like, you do about two minutes where you're just breathing and getting into it. Uh, or rather it's about 30 seconds. And then, and then you do this mantra for about 20 minutes and then you do it about two minutes to exit from it. Uh, gotcha. And so. Uh, and you do it every day. Every day. Like In fact, for, for years, I would do it twice a day, every day. And now, you know, for the most part, I meditate once a day, except for days where I feel like I don't have any time. And those days I meditate twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that's when you need it the most. <laughs> yeah. You, you see what I did there? Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so wow, I'm, that's really impressive. Yeah. Twice. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in it. And by the way, uh, an enormous number of athletes I've interviewed or gotten to know have talked about meditation, but also I think how meditation bleeds into visualization mm. because you can't help often if you're a driven person to be thinking about that certain outcome that you want while you're meditating. I remember hearing a great uh, Kobe Bryant interview. They asked him how he knew that it was time for, for him to retire and he said that it was the first time in his life when he was meditating that he wouldn't think about basketball anymore. And I thought that was a really cool point. Like it's true. Yeah. Whenever, for, for the most part, whenever I meditate, I'm thinking about work or family or just like things that are really important to me. And, yeah. and that's a cool, that was a cool answer from him. And, you know, yeah. now do you meditate every day? Oh, I wish I could say that because now you said you're so good about it. And I'm like feeling bad that I'm not as, <laughs> not hey, as good about it. Hey, you said it yourself. You said that you meditate. You I meditate, do meditate, but I wish I better. could say that it's every single day. And I, I, this is a horrible excuse. I was better about it before COVID. So my boyfriend and I have been dating since 2009, since high school. Wow. Um, so we're coming up on 12 years this November. Um, and before COVID, I would have said we've been dating for like 10 and a half years and nine and a half of those years had been remotely. So like when I was at, in Florida, he was in New York. And then when wow. I moved to port to Portland, he moved to San Francisco. So we've always been on the same coast, but in different cities until, and then he moved to LA. And then when COVID hit, he they all like locked shut down and so he packed up the car with himself and a few things and the dog and drove to portland um for what we thought was going to be like four to six weeks so he moved in with me in my 550 square foot studio condo in portland oregon awesome. for a short um quarantine that turns out to be a year and a half <laughs> still going um, Still going, actually. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I feel like I had a better routine when it was when I lived alone, because I really like to do it first thing in the morning. So I would just wake up first thing in the morning, 10 minutes. Um, my I would just knock it out, like, great way to start the day. But now I wake up the dogs wanting to go out, you know, she wants breakfast. And I, 
I don't like meditating when anyone else is like in the room. And so I'm in a studio condo and there's no other room. Like, unless I go to the bathroom, like there's nowhere else to like be alone. So I have definitely slipped. One hack that I have found though is um, the car. So if I like drive somewhere and then I come home, um, I'll sit, sometimes I'll just sit in the parking lot in my car for 10 minutes um, and do it then. So just like you said, like figuring out when you're going to like, when you're going to do it can be like, that's the hardest part. So I think for right now, while I'm in a studio condo with roommates, dog and boyfriend, um, the car kind of is, is my little hack. Um, I think yeah. the car is a great hack, by the way. Yeah. I used to, I used to meditate in the car actually almost every day uh, when, ah. I would, when I would drive to work. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So a big believer in the car. Yeah. Yeah. Now you also journal, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Is this more, you know, personal what's going on in my life journaling? Is this a gratitude journal? Is this detailed notes on your training regimen and how you felt? Like all of the above. So I have I have a bullet journal. I don't know if you're familiar with bullet journaling. Um, but for listeners who are not, at least, um, it is dot page paper um, bound into a journal. And so when you get it, it's just like blank pages, but there's it's dot paper. So at least you have like some structure to the page and you literally just like create it however you want. And I, this is um, gonna be totally unapplicable for those who are listening, but I'm just gonna show Will what my journal looks like. And it's a little bit of everything. Like sometimes I just write in it um, like lists, lots of like lists. Um, yeah, lists. I, th- this is a new one, but I wonder if I have, I, I see some running stats in there. Some running things are like, um, calendars, There's like a you calendar. can make a calendar page and I have, what is this that... color coded, uh, manuscript? <laughs> Lots of colors. I like colors. Um, and then there's this thing called um, a habit tracker. And I actually have a link to it on my website. Um, shameless plug for callingquigley.org. And there is a link for a like a blank um, template for the habit tracker on there. But it's basically you put all your days of the week on a column on the left hand side. And then you have all your habits that you want to track on the top. And I wrote each of them in a different color. And so then on the day that I do that habit, um, I like get to color like, it fill in. in that little bubble. Yeah. And it's in its respective color. Um, so what are so some of your habits? Of fun. So like during the season, I don't really drink alcohol or eat like eat many desserts. So I'll have like alcohol, um, no alcohol, no desserts, meditating, um, reading, I try and read like at like put my phone away, you know, 30 minutes for bed or whatever and like read um, yoga, which I don't do every day, but I try and do like three times a week, maybe. Um, and then sometimes I write down a daily gratitude. So like this month, I was keeping track of a daily gratitude. Um, so every time I did that, I got to fill in like my little marker, uh, my little gratitude bubble. Um, sometimes it's like doing my rehab exercises if I'm trying to do those every day. And some of them, I always preface this by being like, some of them you don't actually want to do every day. Like for example, alcohol, I don't necessarily need to go 30 days with filling the no alcohol bubble. I just want to make sure that I'm not getting into a bad pattern while I'm having it 
multiple times throughout the week. And maybe I made the goal of having it once a week, but then all of a sudden I'm feeling, you know, oops, like I had it three times last week and I said I was going to have wine once a week. So it's not even that you have to be perfect about all of your, you know, type A perfect about all your habits, but looking at trends and being like, okay, I said I was going to be good about my rehab exercises. And now it's been four days since I've done them. Um, and, you know, maybe my foot pain is coming back or something like, hmm, I wonder what happened. So I actually really love the journal feature in whoop, because um, it keeps track of that. And it's, it, like prompts you to do it in the morning. So with this, I have to like, go and like, you know, get my pens out and like, but with it prompting you, it makes it much easier to just be like, boom, boom, boom. Yes, no, yes, no. Um, and be done with it in like 30 seconds, which is really cool. So how long have you been on Whoop now? I started using a Whoop since it's been since last September. Um, in my off season last year, I picked it up and from a friend of mine, actually Kate Courtney, who was one of oh, your athletes, she's a good friend of mine. And she had been posting about it. And I was like, I think I need this because I think I've been overtraining. And um, I think I need for me, it's been like, met actual real metrics to show me when I'm not recovering. Um, because it, I think I, I have this problem. I've talked to Kate about this multiple times. Like, it's not for lack of trying. I think we're both are like, I think we both maybe try too hard. Um, we just like do less trying. Um, and it's like more just like, yeah, you're tired. I feel I've been feeling tired, but I'm just being a baby. Like I just need to push through, you know, and do like suck it up. But when something's actually there to tell you like, no, you've been 20% recovered for three days in a row, like need to give yourself a break. Um, it's much easier to do that when you have like some, something that's giving you real data and it's not just like, in your head a lot of the origins of whoop were around this idea of preventing overtraining. i yeah. realized this personally but hard driving athletes even hard driving individuals who you know they're often capable of of pushing their bodies past where they necessarily should be pushed and that's yeah. an amazing asset to have a mind that can do that but it also can take you to a dark place or or not a good place at least. Absolutely. So Often your that, best features can be also your worst detriment. That's common. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of strengths and weaknesses are on the same side of the coin for sure. Yeah. So what have you noticed that has helped your recovery that you, you otherwise, you know, may not have known about? Um, so a few things that I keep track of in my journal are um, CBD. I work with a CBD company called Beam. Um, so I do like, uh, capsules as well as like the dropper. Um, and so I keep track of whenever I've done that. Definitely. And you'll, and you'll uh, take those before bed. Yeah. And throughout the day, like they have a recovery okay. one that has like turmeric in it and stuff like an anti-inflammatory one. So I actually use that also like instead of ibuprofen, I really don't, um, don't use ibuprofen. It like messes up my stomach. So if I have a headache or, you know, like, really any kinds of like aches and pains. Um, I take CBD instead of ibuprofen. And then I definitely do before bed um, to help me wind down before, yeah, before sleep. Okay. So CBD, that, that seems like maybe it's been helpful. Yeah. Um, I think also, I mean, it's just the things that everyone already knows, but like going to bed and waking up at the same time and actually 
the thing that's been great for that uh, with COVID is having the dog with me because she wakes up at 6 a.m. every morning to get breakfast. And so it's one of the, we always joke at like 930. She's passed out. I mean, you can't, you know, she's immobile. And um, we always joke that like if we're up and like being loud or something that Pi, my dog is saying like, can you guys keep it down? I got to get up at six. Like I'm trying to get my beauty rest. You know, my, I'm, I got to get up at six. <laughs> so we're like, oh shoot, we know Pi is going to be up at six. Like we got to go to bed or else, you know, we're going to not get enough sleep and end up in the yellow or in the red or whatever. But waking up and going to bed at the same time every night really does help, even though massively so bad it's massively that. important yeah yeah i mean we've looked at people who sleep consistently versus people who don't but get a lot of time in bed so they have a mm-hmm. longer sleep duration and the people who sleep consistently which means they go to bed and wake up at the same time as you're describing they have like meaningfully better recovery meaningfully better hrv meaningfully yeah. lower resting heart rates uh it's it's actually a real real life hack and often when you meet people who say they don't need you know, six hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep, they're, they're fine on five or six or whatever. That's probably not true, but th- they often are people who sleep very consistently, which mm-hmm. in turn gives them this higher efficiency of sleep, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And I honestly, I have no excuse not to do that. Um, like I know people who work like night shifts at hospitals and stuff. Um, and you just, I mean, you're screwed. I don't know how you're, <laughs> you're supposed to like deal with that. That is, is brutal. Um, but I legitimately have no excuse not to do that. Um, being a professional athlete is my full-time job. So I do try and be pretty good about, I go to bed before 10 AM or 10 PM. And I try and wake up between six and seven, uh, in the morning. So that's pretty good. That's like, you know, eight or nine hours of, of time in bed, probably, yeah. uh, yeah. probably pretty efficient sleep too. If you're spending that much time training and also going to bed consistently now, yeah. uh, you're a dietitian. So what? Well, what we- I study dietetics. You okay, have to do fine. a four year undergrad fine. and then you do a one year internship and then you take an exam to become an RD. So I, I'm not an RD, but I did my undergrad. Okay. You were well, you were well on your way. So what, <laughs> what, uh, what do you, what's going on with your diet and how have you seen that affect your body? Yeah, I think you know, I was very lucky to grow up in a family that, um, we, cooked a lot of food and we had healthy kind of values around food and food preparation and eating as a family and like not doing a lot of pre-prepared meals, not a lot of like, I don't know, like frozen stuff. Um, My dad actually is the main cook in our family and um, just did a great job of like buying real foods and like chopping and sauteing and baking. And I was always like kind of part of that um, and being like in the kitchen and stuff. So then I remember getting to college and like kind of doing that for myself and, and remember my college roommates being like, how do you know how to do that? Or like, you know, like simple things that I would like make pancakes from scratch and they would be like, where's the box? You know? Um, and I'm like, it's just like flour and water. And you know, it's like, it's not that hard. Uh, so I, I don't know. I've like always had a good like baseline of like how to cook and prepare food for myself. And I think that was hugely influential to me as an athlete um, that I just know how to whip up like a healthy meal. And it doesn't feel like a lot of mental or physical energy to do that. Uh, I don't have to think about it that much. And I really enjoy eating that way. 
And I know that when I eat that way, I just feel better. Like I can recover faster from workouts. I feel better the next day. Um, when I fuel between workouts, if I'm working out twice in the same day, I can get more out of myself like that second workout. And I know that it's more sustainable for like being an athlete for a long period of time. Um, and you can kind of feel like you can get away with it, especially when you're younger, um, you do whatever the heck you want and your body just bounces back and you do great. But now I'm, you know, 28 years old and you just can't get away with like eating crap like that. Cause you just feel, you feel the inflammation more, you feel the effects of it more. Um, and it's, I just hate that. Like I hate having a bad workout or having a bad run that I feel like was avoidable, um, if I had just, you know, fueled better, it seems like such a simple fix. So it's definitely something I enjoy doing, but it also is, yeah, hugely important for my performance. Now, how much do you pay attention to, uh, your weight? Because I imagine that running, you burn so many calories, like it might be very yeah. easy to all of a sudden get, get kind of thin if you're not sort of thinking about it. Yeah, I think it's, it's a tricky subject in our sport because there is a lot of eating disorder issues and distance running. Yeah, I read um, that. A lot of, yeah, just like a lot of, you know, you're racing in like a sports bra and like, like almost like a swimsuit right. um, bottoms. And so there's, you know, as you're on display on TV and in person, you know, people kind of can easily judge the way that you look and then you know, make uh, connections between how skinny you look and how well you perform. And commentators have been known to even make comments about that, like saying, oh, it looks like so-and-so has lost weight or put on weight, or, you know, she looks, she looks a certain way or whatever. Um, and so it can be kind of toxic. And I think it's something that people have been talking about even more, more and more in the last couple of years, which is um, really helpful because younger girls who are coming up in the sport, like need to have that be an open conversation, um, that they can be aware of and feel like they're not the only ones who might struggle with that. Um, and figure out advice from older athletes in the sport about how to deal with it and how to kind of best cope with it and hear from older athletes that have been in it for a while that tell them it's not worth it to try and get a certain, you know, like achieve a certain weight. And that does not mean that you're going to run faster. Um, or it might for a very short period of time, but then you will end up with stress fractures and, you know, stress bone injuries that are going to take you out of the sport at a much younger age than it should. Um, and you know, you just won't be able to last and it's not worth it. Um, but they need to be able to hear that. And I think that message is for me, at least as far as I can tell has been stronger than ever, which is amazing. So for myself, I don't count calories. I don't weigh myself regularly. Um, I might weigh myself when, if I have a really good race, I might check in and, and weigh myself and see, you know, how I'm doing. Um, but I, I for, for myself, I never try to achieve a number on the scale in order to tell me if I'm going to run fast or not. Um, I more look at workout times and how I've been running, how I've been working out and using those as indicators for how um, well I'm going to race and how fit I am at that time. And that's really what I recommend kind of for younger athletes who ask me about that too. And then in terms of like counting calories or your diet, I just say, you know, eat really good foods that are nutritious and filled with nutrients that your body needs to recover and repair and do what you ask it to do every day, because you're asking a lot of your body every single day. So 
give it what it needs and eat until you're full. And then you don't ever have to count calories or anything like that. And not only I think is it toxic, but it's also just so exhausting to like be counting everything that you're putting in your body and measuring every little tiny thing. And um, I just think it ends up being, yeah, super exhausting and ends up draining your mental energy more than it really does you any good. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I've, I've certainly talked to athletes who have a similar mindset to you, but I've also heard, you know, the exact opposite, which is like, they feel like if they're not measuring everything about what they put in their body, they're losing like an input system on, on their performance. Yeah, totally. I could see that too, especially if the goal there is to make sure that you're getting enough. I think usually when you see that in track and distance running, um, the measuring is happening in order with the goal of like to limit instead of to increase, which is, yeah, not, um, not super healthy. So if definitely, if you're doing it in a way that's like, Oh, I'm not eating enough. I need to count in order to add more. Um, then for sure. I think that is a, a more, you know, useful scenario to count or to, to measure. Who are uh, influences for you or, or people that you look to, to better understand training or performance or success as you define it? Oh gosh, so many people. And I think people in and outside of my own sport too. Um, So like an example of someone who I've looked up to for many years in my own sport is Allison Felix, five-time Olympian mom. Um, She ended up her and I both ended up, um, she did before I did leaving Nike to go pursue another sponsor that we've both felt like, um, celebrated really our values and, and held the same values as we do. And so to see her do that before I did was really inspiring to me and gave me a lot of kind of like, okay, if Allison can do it, so can I. Um, and I just really, yeah, I looked up to what she did with the maternity stuff where she was going to have a baby and, um, she was going to be reduced by Nike for not performing for that year while she was pregnant and having Cami. Um, but then this year, you know, she performed better than ever, um, at the Olympics, got another bronze and another gold in Tokyo at like age 35. Um, like I said earlier, so Um, and actually she forced Nike to add a clause in all their contracts with their professional female athletes, um, giving them 18 months of wiggle room around having, um, a child that they can't be reduced. Um, they will not serve any financial repercussions for having a kid. Um, so, and that was all her that they had refused to give that to her. And so she stepped away from the sport or uh, stepped away from, not from the sport, but away from her sponsor. And right. said, I'm going to find someone who's going to support yeah. me in that area. And then, so then it made Nike look horrible. So then they had to come back and, and offer that to all of their female athletes, um, which wouldn't have happened if she hadn't stood up for herself. So I think for me, it's people who in track and field and in other sports, like Naomi Osaka is a good example in tennis who stand up for stuff that they believe in and really use sport as a platform to, you know, show what what they care about and like use their voice. Um, And I think for me, that's more inspiring than any kind of medal or record or, you know, amazing thing that they do athletically, which is always so cool to see too. But then um, it's the extra, it's the more for me. 
it's whatever they do um, with that, that always ends up really impressing and like inspiring me. Yeah. Well, it's a, there's a really nice movement happening in, in uh, women's sports. A lot of, a lot of fascinating ambassadors of, of uh, women's athletics and, and very inspiring stories to your point. Mm-hmm. So what, what is next for you? What, where, where do you take your, your sights next? Yeah. So a couple exciting things happening um, in the next few years. First on the schedule is a world championships next summer um, for track and field. It will be the first time ever in history that the United States is hosting world championships. Um, and it's actually going to be in Eugene, Oregon, where we just had Olympic trials this summer at a brand new stadium, uh, Hayward Field at University of Oregon. Um, no jet lag. The race there many times. And so it feels like home. And yeah, just to have it actually in the States. I know I'll be training um, in Flagstaff, Arizona at high altitude. And it's just like a two and a half hour flight to get to Eugene from there and no time change. Like it'll just be Amazing. boop. Like, you know, all the athletes who went to Tokyo were saying how like the night and day situation is tough. Um, and so I think it'll give the Americans a nice little advantage there. Um, and just, yeah, like the pride of like hosting it in your home country is really fun. So definitely lo- looking forward to that. And then with the whole um, COVID wait a year delay Olympics. We only have three years until the next one. Now we'll be in 2024 uh, in Paris, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. So I'm very excited about the opportunity to compete there. And then if, you know, looking really far out on the schedule, if I were to keep competing through 2028, the Olympics are coming back to the United States and they're going to be in LA in 2028, which would be very cool. Well, I like that you're penciling that in. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. It's a, I think that's important. You know, I think yeah. it's important, especially, I mean, I have a lot of admiration for you Olympians because you, you have to have such a maniacal focus. You have to work so hard. And then it really all comes down to one or two events every four years. I mean, it's, yeah, it's an amazing dedication. Do you feel like, do you feel like Olympians are, are properly rewarded for that level of commitment? I think I looked up what you get for a gold medal at the Olympics and it was like $30,000 or something. And I was just like, oh, that's so pathetic. Um, I mean, to properly reward it just depends on like what, you know, what your standards are, I guess, for that or how you determine rewards. But look, there are plenty of Olympians in plenty of different sports uh, that are hosted at the Olympics who they cannot make a living just doing what they do, you know, the way that, that I do. Like, I feel super grateful that I don't have to have a second job or, you know, um, try and make ends meet. Like I can do my job full on, spend all my time and energy, you know, towards my, my goals. Um, but there are plenty of athletes who are scraping it together to be able to go to the Olympics and represent their country. And, um, then, you know, like, having another job or two other jobs along the way. It's just like, it's not an easy, you know, an easy thing, but it's a labor of love and something they're super passionate about and feel is really important and makes them very happy. And I think a lot of them would say that, you know, it's worth it. Well, Colleen, this has been a real pleasure getting to spend time with you. And uh, I think you've still got uh, the best is yet to come uh, for your career. I've got a very good feeling about that. <laughs> I hope and, so. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me on the Whoop podcast. And uh, thanks also for being on Whoop. Yeah. Thanks. Well, it was great chatting with you. Thanks to Colleen for coming on the Whoop podcast. A reminder, you can use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, to get 15% off a Whoop membership. You can find us on social at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. And if you like the Whoop podcast, be sure to leave us a review or comment. It helps anyone looking to unlock their own best performance find this podcast. And if you have thoughts on the Whoop podcast, feel free to head to our show notes for a link to a podcast survey where you can tell us everything on your mind. Okay, folks, stay healthy and stay in the green.